Hey, what's up? It's Alex Morgan. And for me, the start of the new year is all about commitments, setting your intentions, restarting your routine, and committing to you from day one. Body Armor Light, the low-calorie, zero-sugar-added sports drink. Shop now on Amazon.com. Hey there. Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy. Editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio with Nancy and Lisa. Every first Monday, we get to chat with Mike Guardia. He is an award-winning author, a military historian, and a historian of, and I don't care what you ask him, he knows everything. He really does when it comes to history. He's also a U.S. Army veteran, and I believe he's up to 21 books. Uh, Many people know him from uh, the acclaimed biography, How Moore, A Soldier Once and Always, that chronicles the life of Lieutenant Harold G. Moore, and it was also featured in the movie We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson. His latest book, Mike's latest book, Mike Wardy again, is Danger Forward, The Forgotten Wars of General Paul F. Gorman, and uh, we're excited because we know March they'll being a new book, Combat Diaries, coming out. So you can keep up with Mike at MikeGuardia.com and, of course, BigBlendRadio.com for our every first Monday with Mike uh, talking about military history. So welcome back, Mike. How are you? Hey, Lisa, I'm doing great. It's great to be on the show yeah. as always. Hey, this is we're excited today. You know, yeah. there's one thing on the our Love Your Parks tour as we travel across the country. We document parks and, and public lands, and you're like, well, you got to do generals and military history, you know, mm-hmm. which... Honestly, when I started going back through some of our files, I'm like, oh, we could write a book mm-hmm. <laughs> for some of the places mm-hmm. we've been, right? Because military history is so big. Um, but we were going to talk because February is President's Day weekend comes up. And Nancy has this thing about thinking that presidents should serve in the military in some mm-hmm. capacity or do I some really kind did. of community service mm-hmm. to understand warfare and um just to have that general understanding. Mm-hmm. Oh, I used the general word again. Anyway, so we were talking about going back and forth about what presidents, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, we were on Eisenhower's farm outside Gettysburg, uh, President mm-hmm. Eisenhower's farm. And then, oh, let's talk about the internet, interstate system. And then I realized, oh, we also had Little Rock High School, which is the only high school that's a national park unit. It's a national monument because of the Little Rock Nine, uh, you know, the nine uh, black kids that went to school. Uh, and that was after Brown versus Board or Board versus Brown, I'll get it straight. But um, at that point, segregation was supposed to go away in schools. And apparently Eisenhower said, let them in and sent the National Guard when the governor mm-hmm. of Arkansas tried to stop um, what was supposed to rightfully happen. So we've been to a few and I know there's more, especially the interstate system, which we know very well. <laughs> so welcome <laughs> back to talk about Ike, great Ike. So. He's, he's amazing, isn't he? Like, really, his history, I had no idea how distinguished he did a lot. He, 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 did he a was, lot. you know, and is in our history. He he's, sure is. Yeah. Not, not only a great leader, but also a great president. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, here, here was a guy from the American heartland and, uh, yeah, rose to do great things and left a very long-lasting legacy behind. It seems that he also was able to work between both major parties. I know he's Republican, but he was like moderate conservative, right? But seemed to <clears throat> balance both sides. And when I was looking at his election records, it looks like when he got elected, it was like 
the landslide. majority of the it was a landslide <laughs> one of those it, mm-hmm. like the country said heck yeah which was pretty we don't have that anymore <laughs> we don't but that, well, that, because i think it was so well known for what he did through his military career people knew who he was right. I, I just remember my grandmother you know i used to think oh she had a crush on him but she just said we would not be free today if it wasn't for him Mm-hmm. And, and she really felt like, it's almost like he single-handedly won World War II, you know? She's like, if it wasn't for his direction and his ability to make changes, no matter how drastic they were, at home and overseas, that we really wouldn't be free today. She really, that she used to drill that in my head. So when I see Eisenhower, I'd like bow down. <laughs> Tell, tell us a little bit about his history, um, because he, I was reading that he actually really wanted to serve even in World War One, right? Right. Yeah, so Ike was a graduate of West Point. He was a member of the class of 1915, and that particular West Point class has a pretty unique place in history uh, because it's known colloquially as the class that the stars fell on. And they hold that distinction because of all of the graduates of 1915, an overwhelming majority of uh, majority of them went on to achieve uh, went on to achieve flag rank, and wow. yeah, his class included the likes of Omar Bradley and uh, James Van Fleet, and several others who would become big names not only in World War One but also World War Two, and would play a very critical role in the early years of the Cold War, wow. and yeah. Uh, Eisenhower, you know, when when uh, after he graduated from West Point, he was uh, one of one of many of his classmates who really wanted to go overseas and uh, fight in World War One. You know, this was the first uh, this was really the first global conflict that that class was exposed to. But for uh, you know, but for one reason or another, he uh, you know the cards fell as they were, and he was he was relegated to stateside posts. But uh, you know, even those stateside assignments that he had during the war helped uh, help plant the seeds for a lot of the a lot of the great legacy programs that he would do later. As a matter of fact, it was uh, it was his stateside duty overseeing uh, overseeing military convoys in California that uh, really gave him the idea for expanding the nation's highway system. Hmm. The, that was interesting about the highway system because I first heard of, about that when we started covering Route 66. Mm-hmm. in Arizona because mm-hmm. pretty much this was the, one of the most traveled routes way back in the day when you think about the great American road trip this was the mother road and of course mm-hmm. there's some other highways as well we're about to do Jefferson Highway from Winnipeg to New Orleans that's going to be something coming up maybe we'll detour and see you right you know so uh-huh. we'll be up there somewhere but we're not seeing you in winter sorry we're, no. we're still going to see you in <laughs> Minnesota and winter's not happening for us sorry. no just isn't I don't- <laughs> Because I'm looking at the thermometer right now, and it says that the ambient temperature outside is two below zero. We're not coming to see you in winter, but we'll see you in spring or summer, most likely summer. Um, But the, I mean, you think about this, the American road trip, this, people also had this feeling of being able to explore and enjoy their country. It's a very interesting time frame of what happened with Route 66. And because of the interstate system, Route 66 kind of fell away from the American road trip and became convenience. And if you go down like 40, which is, if you loosely follow 
Interstate 40, you'll hit Route 66 on and off. Mm -hmm. um, but business did actually crumble for a lot of areas. And now it's becoming part of the National Historic uh, Trails that we have, a National Historic mm -hmm. Road and Route. And um, like Arizona, I think, was one of the first states mm -hmm. to really stand up and say, hey, we need to stand up for Route 66, get people to come off the interstate. But this is the American culture of, of where we are. If there's a Big Mac or are we going to go to the little store, the mom and pop store? So that's where I first learned about Eisenhower. And I have to say, mm -hmm. going through the revolution of Route 66 re becoming popular again, which it is, um, <laughs> I didn't really like what he did, but then I had to realize Nancy's like, no, he needed the route. Wasn't yeah. it for tanks to be able to maneuver across the country? Just right, and it was, it, it was also designed to be a, uh, it, it was, was also designed to be an evacuation thoroughfare so that in the event that there was a nuclear war or any type of conflict that came to the shores of the United States, then people would have uh, people would have an easy means of egress, you know, from wherever they were in the U.S. And you know, they could uh, they could very quickly escape from one area to another. Oh wow, I did not know that part of it. So, because I thought it was about tanks, and we're used to seeing tanks. Like, I don't know if they're tanks now that it, they're big with the big wheelie things. This sounds terrible, but you know what I mean? When we lived out in 29 Palms, we had all the big interstates and you'd see them go. And it's like, talk about a convoy. And it's like, dude, I'm scared. I'm not going to follow too closely. You never know what could happen. But um, the, to me, that's amazing. You know, the evacuation routes. And you've got to think because he really was instrumental in wanting to kick North Korea's butt at one point in regards to mm. nuclear war. And even, I mean, it, if he was alive today right now, I wonder where he would, you know, what he would think about what to do in regards to Russia and, and North Korea and even China, right? He was involved with that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one of the things that I can say about Ike is that he was a hawk when it came to national defense and mm -hmm. uh, he and MacArthur, I think ha had a very similar mindset to say that you know, if we are going to engage in armed conflict, then the only acceptable outcome is going to be either A, the total annihilation of the enemy, or mm -hmm. we are going to make them feel defeated to a point where they will accept any terms of uh, an unconditional surrender. Yeah. So he, he was really one of those, like, if you're going to do it, do it. Right. Well, yeah, because you mm -hmm. can't do it halfway, because then you just have to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And eventually you lose. If you mm -hmm. do it halfway, I think you would probably lose eventually. So I get where I get his mindset. It was drilled into me by my grandmother that, you know, we wouldn't be here mm -hmm. if it wasn't, we wouldn't be free if it wasn't for Eisenhower. She never mentioned any other person in the military. <laughs> but, but that was because, isn't it also true about him really being instrumental in the invasion of Normandy? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, pretty much from the get go, that, that was his baby. You know, he said that, you know, he said that, okay, if we're going to, uh, if we're going to invade the European mainland, here's what we have to do first. First, we, we have to establish a base of operations in North Africa. We have to uh, establish something that's close to the European mainland, to the soft underbelly of Europe as a staging area. And how we have to attack it first is we have to get a foothold on Italy. 
And then what we have to do is if we know that all of the highest concentration of German forces is, is within uh, occup occupied France proper, then we need to do a pincer movement. We need to invade from the north along the beaches of Normandy. And we also have to have a southern invasion of France, which would eventually become Operation Dragoon. And he said, okay, well, if we can do this at the same time. We can do this at the same time. If we can land troops um, in Normandy first, and at the same time, also, also land them on the beaches of Southern France by the Riviera, we'll, uh, envelop, the, uh, we'll envelop the Nazi forces there and be able to push all, all the way into the borders of the fatherland. Now, that was the plan, but unfortunately they didn't have, they didn't have enough warships available to facilitate uh, um, two simultaneous invasions. So what they ended up doing is they said, is, uh, is Ike took a step back and said, okay, well, if I had to choose which one I'm going to invade first, do I want to invade, do I want to invade uh, Northern France first or do I want to invade the South? I think I would be better served if I invaded the North first because that's where I know all the heaviest defenses are. And if I can pacify all of those defenses first and if I can divert, if I can divert enough of the war mocks attention to fighting our uh, occupation force in the North, it's gonna make it that much easier to invade in the South. And when we invade in the South, we, we can hook up with the free French forces. We can we can hook up with the French partisans, and uh, and really facilitate the enemy's destruction in central France. And then that'll make it that much easier to push into the borders of Germany itself. Wow! So this is I mean, could you imagine being him in yeah. looking at that that kind of invasion mm -hmm. and the knowing strategy. that yeah. I mean. I bet he was a really. You have to have some confidence. I bet he was a really good chess yeah. player. I bet oh, he yeah. played chess because you know he really thought it all the way from beginning to end, mm -hmm. exactly from all angles. I don't know how much intelligence he had, um, you know, from other people telling him, "Well, the trains like this, and and there's these forces here." How much intelligence he was able to gather before making. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. These plans, but he, he seemed to really know what was, what was happening on the ground. It mm. did, and it required a lot of diplomacy on his part too, because when he assumed command of allied forces in Europe, he was actually starting behind the eight ball because here was a two-star general and he was a two-star general who had never been in a war before. And he's, wow. he's assuming command of a lot of his subordinate commanders. He's going in and he's talking to all of these British generals and field marshals who 
not only have experience in World War One, but they also have recent experience fighting the Germans in World War Two. And, you know, here here he comes, this completely inexperienced general oh. and has convinced them that, you know, hey, the plan that I'm presenting to you, distinguished combat veterans now, which is being implemented by all of these, you know, uh, farm boys from Kansas and uh, wow. all, all, all of these three kids from L.A., this is going to be what saves you. And this is what's going to be uh, th- th- this is essentially what's going to be the savior of Europe. So, you know, to uh, to market it to that distinguished body of military leaders in Europe. I mean, if uh, if if mm. that is not leadership and if that is not diplomacy, then I have no idea what is. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. Because yeah. It kind of mm. goes with Hal Moore, you know, when mm-hmm. you talk about how he had to have that connectivity and being right. on the farm. Uh, again, it's outside Gettysburg. Right. And so uh, I like we've said before, going to Gettysburg is and, and there's a cemetery there for World War II veterans in, mm-hmm. in Gettysburg as well. So there is that connection. And I think that's partly why he bought land there um, and had that farm. And his wife was adamant about him going to the farm. She said there's a sign when I was reading through things that the farm saved Ike's life twice. And that's, you know, because the sun porch and taking a walk, he has a, um, a United States flag. And they would walk to the pond every time he was getting uptight or having this plan things, she'd make him go for a walk to the flag. So they would go to the pond and reflect and calm down. But what he did, and we weren't able to go inside, you can take virtual tours, everyone, if you go to nps.gov and just look up the Eisenhower National Historic Site um, in, you know, in um, Pennsylvania, I was going to say Maryland, because we were staying in Maryland at the time, in Tawnytown. Um you can go on there and see the 3Ds of inside. We can mm-hmm. see some of the machinery for the farm. They even have a gas station, their own Chevron gas pumps there mm-hmm. on the farm. But, um, well, because he had a helicopter pad because they had to bring him in. But his diplomacy was when he was working with leaders that came over to the country, to the U.S., he brought them out to the farm and they even have their own mm-hmm. cottage out there. You can see it's a little, it's modest. You know, the farm looks grand and the greenery behind us that's actually like a miniature golf course at the <laughs> by the barn, um, but he said that he brought people there because he he felt like everyone could just kind of this isn't his words but get over themselves or whatever. It's more of a relaxed atmosphere where people could just be real and um, get past the White House kind of Pentagon zone of of how things are and just be people and truly reconnect. And that's how he looked at he made real relationships and he was able to help in, in negotiations by taking people to the farm. That's, I mean, that's just part of that, you know, that diplomacy with taking people out and just, mm. let's just re- reconnect as human beings in a beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. area, you know, it's a, it's a pretty amazing, but he was also, involved with the Bay of Pigs. Tell us about this, because that didn't go too well either, right? <laughs> and I think he had to hand it over to Kennedy. So refresh mm-hmm. us all about the Bay of Pigs, because that was a, that was a, that was a mess. <laughs> Cuban <Okay>. Missile Crisis, <laughs> here we go. All right. So let's go ahead and wind the clocks back to 1961. Mm. Um, it was actually a little bit of a carryover from the Eisenhower administration, mm. um, headlong 
into the Kennedy years. And, you know, for most of Ike's presidency, uh, he enjoyed some pretty stable relations with Cuba. You know, I mean, throughout the 1950s, you really had Cuba as uh, America's primary playground. And, you know, here you had this tropical paradise that mm-hmm. was o- only 90 miles off the coast of Florida. And, you know, you had a lot of two-way traffic there. You had a lot of Americans who had, you know, homes and, and uh, beach houses and timeshares. And it was, it, was a, uh, it was a place where any American could go to unwind and relax. And at the time, it was the bastion of a, uh, of a dictator named Batista. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for, for lack of a better term, Batista was a pretty repressive dictator. And, you know, in the uh, tragic irony that tends to befall a lot, of the popular, uh, a lot of the popular revolutions that happened down in Latin America, you had people trading one brutal dictator for another. Mm-hmm. And that was the rise of... Uh, that was the rise of our of our friend Fidel Castro, mm-hmm. and uh, in 1959, that's when the uh, that's when the Cuban Revolution really uh, starts to hit critical mass, and you have the uh, you have the Batista government being ousted, and then you have a uh, and then you have a uh, communist dictatorship established mm-hmm. under the auspices of Mr. Fidel Castro. Well, he uh, he very quickly establishes a uh, establishes a close relationship with the Soviet Union, and this is happening right as uh, the Eisenhower presidency mm-hmm. coming to an end. So uh, Ike and his vice president at the time, Nixon, you know, start to start to sit down and think. Okay, well, we have a communist enclave that is less than a hundred miles off mm-hmm. the coast of Miami. <laughs> Now, all of a sudden, communism isn't something that's confined to Western Europe. It's not something that's confined to the you know, far confines of uh, East mm-hmm. Asia. Now it's something that's right in our backyard. Mm-hmm. And if Cuba fell that quickly, given everything we know about the stability of Latin America as a whole, how long is it going to be before other Latin American countries start to tip in the direction of, you know, of, uh, of communist Cuba? So being that we don't like him, being that it's pretty fair that he, uh, the fair assessment that he doesn't like us and that his best friend is our public enemy number one, how do we get rid of this guy? And, you know, plans were being drawn up to, you know, either, either assassinate Castro by some passive means. There was, even a, there was even an idea that was floated around of, you know, planting an explosive cigar in, uh, in one of his palaces. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they... Uh, yeah, they were they were cool. very creative <laughs> in drumming up all these ways to try to get rid of Castro. And one of the plans that had uh, had had taken some bit of shape right as Eisenhower was leaving office was a plan to actually use uh, use um, Cuban exiles and Cuban refugees and train them as a guerrilla army of sorts to you know, invade invade Cuba and overthrow mm. Castro's government. So that plan started in its very basic stages in the last days of the Eisenhower administration. And then during the transition period, you know, that's when Kennedy came into the picture and he, uh, you know, he, he beefed up the plan and that's when it went forward. And uh, yeah, we all pretty much know how the Bay of Pigs disaster ended, you know, yeah. where, uh, it, where people were killed and captured and uh, it was uh, was an unbelievable public relations black eye for uh, for the U.S. and big mess. 
Well, it, it's interesting too, because I wonder when we have these kind of conflicts and we do have leadership changes, it's, it's you know, don't, don't, you know, change your horse midstream. So yeah, I wonder yeah. about that if you have a presidential change when you've been working and, you know, especially mm -hmm. when it's kind of find it interesting, even today, you know, in modern history, as we make it, um, when you have presidents that maybe, you know, they have that time where they communicate, but if they don't get mm -hmm. along, how much, I mean, I wonder about that, even with Afghanistan of what happened, you know, how much right. intelligence really got shared, you know, it, you know, and I don't want to get political, but if the presidents but aren't getting along political. and there's a change of leadership and we're swapping horses, that's a dangerous thing. But because we have a political system mm -hmm. that, you know, we must vote on this date, those kind of things kind of go out the window. So it's um, mm -hmm. yeah, but if you're, interesting it, If you're serving in the military and when you enter the military, you are under the... Um, auspices of say the republican party and then uh, you know four or five years later suddenly you are still in the military and now you're under the auspices of the democratic party the i mean the shift in viewpoints is pretty huge right. so how how did people on the ground how do our troops handle the shift in in management that way hmm. right well it's uh it's not always easy to do and a lot of times there are things from the higher echelon that are done uh, to try to prepare the troops for the transition in leadership. Mm. And it could, it could pretty much be in the form of a memo. It could be in the form of new command policies that are put out. But uh, that's one thing uh, that I personally can attest to because mm. I actually served under three different presidents. I entered mm. the army at, at the tail end of the Bush years. And mm. then I served on active duty throughout the Obama years. And then I was a reservist throughout mm. the Trump administration. So uh, I can tell you wow. that uh, each one of those administrations had different policies that mm -hmm. affected the military in different ways. And, uh, you know, there, there was always a little bit of whipsawing that happened as one administration transitioned from the other, because you would have one administration that would say, okay, well, we're winding down these wars here and we're winding down these conflicts. And then, okay, because we're winding down these conflicts, we're going to pursue policies A, B, and C, and we're going to draw down the force. And then you have a new administration that comes in and says, well, okay, you know, I, I, I saw what happened in the previous administration, but I think it went too far. So we're going to, we're going to halt the reduction in force and we're going to try to beef up our services again. And all of you guys who were involuntarily put out of the military before, hey, if you want to come back, you know, we'll, we'll open up some slots for you. You know, I mean, so that's wow. one example of something that I witnessed in real time. But, uh, mm. you know, in a lot of ways, that's really just the cost of business when you mm. live in a democratic society and you have these elections and you have these changeovers in political leadership. There's always going to be those downstream effects. And, you know, you have some transitioning administrations who do it well and then you will have other administrations who you know just take everything that their predecessor did and you know just completely throw it out the window that, that's a that is an old business thing too someone comes mm -hmm. in and takes over a company and they're like that's it everything 
is yeah, out. clear the table. Just clear, clear the, the table. table. <laughs> and it's like, throw the baby and the bath, bath water out and wonder and, what happens. And, you know? Yeah. It's kind of, that's hard to have. Yeah. Oh, I'm there. Oh, there you are. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, you no, went away for a little. It's all right. Maybe I'm supposed to shut up. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to say something I shouldn't. No, but I think when you, those big abrupt changes are very difficult for a company and it's very difficult for troops to mm -hmm. have that abrupt thing. But it is, like you said, that's the way it is. But I see that kind of management style mm -hmm. in corporations is really starting to go out the window. And especially now when people are going, I don't have to go back to work for you if you're going to treat me like that. It's kind of, it, it's a big, but then that creates an opportunity for someone else. So it's kind of this weird cycle and spin cycle, but going back to what Nancy, you know, the whole thing with president's day and presidency served. I mean, this, like I was saying earlier, that she's always saying like, we should have leadership, you know, at least the vice president should have some kind of military training or they should have done something in there to understand a little bit right because when you think about when we go to war or the dealings with north korea russia china membership fees apply after free trial cancel anytime can i be real for a second that goal you have to exercise and eat better you really can do it but nobody is going to do it for you and nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. There's got to be something... It, it's more than just having someone there for the economy. And it's, it's more than all of that. Those international relationships, like I really did show about, like you were saying, diplomacy. He's, he's, he was 100% there with that, but at the same time understood maneuvers and understood planning and execution and warfare, tactical mm -hmm. warfare. Like how you know, things can work. So how, how much do you think, like Nancy, right with that in regards to presidents? should have some kind of training i mean maybe right. just put them through boot if they didn't well that would i mean think right. about it this way would you like to um go under surgery with someone who's never been to medical school mm -hmm. i mean i really I, I really yeah well that's not <laughs> that's unfortunate but if, i really i really do believe if if you are going to run for office that you should have served in the military because then you have at least proven your dedication to the United States mm -hmm. and you understand what it is when you start talking about going to war or invading right. a country or you, I, I don't see how you even make decisions based on no experience. Especially I, nuclear war. Well, right. yeah, I mean, and Ike was all about, he, he knew that was on the horizon and he was already trying to, to make plans to defend our country against nuclear war. 
So, I mean, he was very visionary, I think. He was. Mm. And I'm inclined to agree. I really mm. think that if someone is gonna run for president, then they should at the very least have served in the military or Absolutely. had some kind of, um, had at, at the very least had some kind of public service job in the mm. sense or um, in, in the sense where you're helping people in more than more than just an official capacity. Say if you were a uh, first responder, you know, probably a, a, mm -hmm. a firefighter, paramedic. I, uh, you know, I think that um, I think that only when you've had that kind of experience do you have really the best mindset to make those hard decisions and you know know what the second and third order effects are going to be when you send somebody into harm's way. And yeah. As a matter of fact, you know, that reminds me, um, the whole topic of, uh, uh, of discussion reminded me of not the movie Starship Troopers, but if you ever read the book Starship Troopers, the original book that the movie was based on, you know, one of the central themes in that book was what separated a civilian from a citizen. And the only way that you could become a citizen and that you could get fully enfranchised rights to vote or to or or to hold any type of political office was that you had to serve in the military, mm -hmm. and you had to serve you had to serve a certain number of years, and only through that experience of service to the nation and to the community were you deemed to be wise enough to make those political decisions, either as a mm -hmm. voter or or as a public official. Mm -hmm. So that uh, so that concept has been around for a while and mm. um it, it really does have a lot of merit i think now i think so yeah mm. i agree with that I mean, why should somebody who has no experience make the biggest decisions that affect the most amount of people it it, it, it doesn't make sense to me it, it's just when i look in just graduating high school in south africa i know we've touched on this it was mandatory to go to military, going to the military for two years uh, for the guys, not for the girls. Mm. Israel is different. I think, I don't know if they're still doing that today. Israel, men and women went in yeah. and it would be different kinds of things you're doing. And I wonder about that, you know, because it's, it's reality. And I wonder about like, when we talk about nuclear war and do you just have that thought of pushing that little red button and it's like playing a video game versus being mm. in real combat. You know, those two completely, this is the, what is it like to be, you know, on the ground to have fear, like real fear, not, you know, and, and bravery and to still go out there and have to do something and really live to a commitment. Um, I, I think that's a huge thing. And I think that's something that just as civilians or citizens or people, we should also understand what weaponry can do. And it's just so easy to look at something being blown up on TV or in a video game versus mm -hmm. what real i mean that i know really i mean i tried shooting guns and that hurt man <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, <did it> wrong. <laughs> you know so it's, it's it's a whole thing that i think with, there's some training that should be there in general but i do want to go back to ike again too because i was also reading that he here he is this big guy in warfare like he's done so much he's decorated he's you know done all these amazing things however wasn't he also trying to kind of cut down how much was 
put in funding wise into the military service like what was going on with that was was it a good thing i mean was it that we were it, it just i was like wow i didn't expect that right and that was actually one of the more controversial decisions that i could make throughout his presidency you know i mean if there was anyone who was qualified to talk about in any type of military matters it was him but what he thought at the time and even when he implemented these decisions he drew a lot of fierce criticism for it mm -hmm. he said you know i look at the changing nature of warfare and I see the future battlefield being one of strategic nuclear retaliation, and I see I see that a lot of the conventional war a lot of the conventional warfare assets that we've had over time are becoming more and more obsolete, and that uh, these future wars, if and when they happen, are largely either going to be fought by proxy or they're going to be handled under the banner of nuclear power and strategic retaliation. So if that's the case, let me beef up all the nuclear capabilities that we have. Let me invest, let, let me invest in a lot of these uh, strategic missiles. Let me in, invest in tactical nukes. Let me invest in aircraft that will be able to engage other aircraft on a strategic level. Oh, wow. And from and, uh, and 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 from range and from ranges that are uh, that are beyond line of sight, and the downstream effect of that policy was that it eroded a lot of our conventional capabilities, and it was it, it was almost as though the prevailing wisdom at the time, you know, not only through throughout the Defense Department, but some of the concepts that I killed deer, was that uh, you know there's going to be less of an emphasis on conventional training and more of who can fire off what weapon first. And, hmm. you know, as a result, we lost a lot of the, we, we, we lost a lot of the individual training that soldiers would have otherwise gotten. And we also lost a lot of the uh, dogfighting skills that our pilots had, uh, had earned and owned throughout World War II in Korea. Because you know, if you take if you take a look at the army side of the house, it was okay. Well, if we're putting more emphasis on guarding these nuclear sites, there's going to be less of an uh, there's going to be less of an emphasis on maneuver training. There's going to be uh, less of an emphasis on keeping our tactical skills sharp. And if you look on the air force side of the house, it was okay. Well, if we're if we're expected to fire off a nuclear missile, you know, from ranges up to and including 100 miles. Do we really need to be focusing on our dogfighting skills? Do we need to be focusing mm -hmm. on how to engage in air to air combat if we can just rely on a missile and rely on a radar to lock on the target from X, X amount of miles away? Hmm. And it, it was that uh, it, it was that it was that, that policy and it was that mindset that led to um, a lot of the readiness issues that we had in the late 1950s and in the early 60s and how we had to how we had to jump through our skin to mm. rebuild a lot of the tactical edges that we had lost. Oh wow. So he was a kind of ahead of his time and kind of pulled the trigger on that too soon. Yet now what right. he's well, talking about is, is now, right? He was kind of a future thinker but mm. doing it it's like I and remember maybe he he just put all his eggs in one basket kind of and let's neglect this and put everything over here instead yeah. of maybe strengthen over here but don't forget yeah other things can happen in between 
it's the baby in the bathwater again. Right. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. the saying of the day. Well, it's, mm-hmm. well, I, I, you know, I think about that, like just even remember Nancy with the magazine in South Africa, Nancy got the big supercomputer. We were able to print out our own film yeah, for the magazine, cool. we we had things on disc. We took it to the printers each time, and we were ahead of the. And they looked at her, and they're like, "We can't do this. We're not ready for that." So we had to start the magazine all over again. <laughs> so you know, it's those kind of little things. You're you're in the future, but it's not where the world is is working at. You know, at that point. Yeah. But right. now we are, and I look at some of the things he did do. He didn't he start NASA? I mean, he he signed the Civil War, uh, not the Civil War, Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. But then he also saw what Russia was doing and went, that's it, we're, we're going to start NASA, too. Yeah. So he was yeah. futuristic and not, you know, wow. wow. Yeah, and- I, grew up, I grew up with uh, people saying that the Russians would get into space first and they would go up on the moon and put a giant mirror up on the moon and it would reflect the sunlight and burn the United States up. Are those that the people a, that are part of the Flat I mean, Earth Society? I don't know, but that's, that's as a kid, that's what I used to hear. And so you got this fear of the Russians, number one. And, uh, you know, like every time somebody's like, oh, they're launching a missile or, or we're going to put a rocket space up, like, yeah, what are you really doing with the rocket ship? Are you putting a big mirror on the moon? What are you really doing? Because <laughs> there's all these rumors that, that just all through high school, there were all these rumors about people going to the moon or you know, nations going to the moon. Everybody's a space race to get to the moon to put up a giant mirror. It's so stupid. <laughs> well, maybe, it's a, mean, maybe it's a possibility. I don't know, but and I don't know who started those rumors. Have you heard about that stuff? It's oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's are weird. They on the, are they the flat earthers? <laughs> I don't know what where that came from. They were or at least of the same ilk, you know. Yeah, right. You know, so looking at Ike and then looking at uh, Combat Diaries, um, when you're going, because these are true stories, right? And um, mm-hmm. you know, you think about World War II, and we just lost, you know, the, the Tuskegee Airmen just a few days oh, ago. Yeah. One, one of the soldiers. Right. I mean, you just look at that. That but he was a hundred and two. So yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he, but, he lived a good life. But we are losing, you know, our veterans of, of World War II. Or, or, you know, down to a very few, but combat diaries. Tell us a little bit about that because it's got to touch into Eisenhower somewhere, right? When you were writing it. Right, right. Uh, okay, so the combat diaries is a collection of, of about two dozen veterans, all of whom have provided their stories for this book, and it uh, it it tells their true stories of you know how they went from how they went from being just regular everyday average Americans like you and me and how they answered the call of duty and what each of their individual journeys were uh, throughout the great crusade that we call World War II. And you know what I really tried to accomplish with the combat diaries is just telling a, uh, is telling a uh, true no, hold bar, no holds barred story of war pr- pr- from the perspective uh, of the men who lived it and what their thoughts were and what their feelings were and what they brought to the table and a lot of the uh, a lot of the images that they wrestled with, not only while they were going through that, that conflict, but also how they dealt with it in the years afterwards. Mm-hmm. And you know, it uh, it runs the entire gamut of World War II. You know, I have uh, I, I have a, quite a collection of stories, and the broader theme that I think ties a lot of these uh, stories together 
is just what the spirit of man can accomplish when you're put in a situation like that. You know, you know uh, for instance, I have, a, uh, I have a story of a young Navy pilot who had his first taste of combat at the Battle of Midway, and he was flying these dauntless dive bombers um, against these Japanese carriers. And, you know, and to put yourself in his mindset at the time, he was telling himself, okay, well, so far the Japanese have dictated the tempo up to this point in the war. We still haven't fully recovered from Pearl Harbor. By God, we need a decisive victory and we really need it quick. You know, mm-hmm. so how is this going to play out? Because if we lose at Midway, chances are we're not going to have the staying power that we need in, 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 in order to win the Pacific War. You know, at least that's what he was telling himself. And, you know, then you also have, uh, you also have, um, uh, you also have the story of a, uh, of an American pilot who was, who was fighting in the Burma theater at a time. And, uh, you know, when he was stationed in Burma, he, uh, he, he had the, uh, he had the um, happy misfortune of um, being able to, uh, being able to capture a fully intact Japanese zero. And the story gets a little more interesting wow. at that point because hmm. it was pretty early in the war. This was 1942. And at this point, the Americans were still flying the P-40, which as many aviation experts can tell you was an inferior plane to the Zero. So oh. now the American forces had their hands on a fully intact Zero. They wanted, to, uh, they wanted to keep it, they wanted to preserve it, and they wanted to send it back to the US for testing. So you have this one particular pilot who, who was uh, selected to uh, fly this captured zero from one American airfield to another. He was flying it from Burma over into India. Well, wow. the airfield he was flying it to at the other end of India, for some reason, they didn't get the memo that a captured Japanese zero was on its way to their airfield. So when, uh, so when their spotters see a, uh, see a zero coming in, they think it's an enemy plane. They think it's piloted by an enemy pilot and they scramble a nearby group of P-40s to intercept it. Well, here is where where the fickle hand of fate comes in because as luck would have it, the Zero actually ran out of gas (laughs) and he ended up belly in the jungle just moments before the P-40s could pull the trigger on him. Wow, that's like divine intervention. That's crazy. That's some crazy... That's wow. crazy. He lands wow. in the jungle, you know, he gets out of the plane and he's like, oh my God, I can't believe this plane ran out of gas. But then when the local air crews come by to pick him up, they say, Philip, you are the luckiest SOB alive because mm, yeah. this yeah. pulling the trigger on you. It's just like, oh, wow. wow. I guess it was a good thing. Yes. So this yeah. is crazy. So he has a huh. dude captured on board, right? So that's got, I want to do a whole new segment on that because- yeah prisoners of war like we've never mm-hmm. talked about them there's so many prison of war camps like across mm-hmm. this you know country too right. um i mean we had italians and germans and you know i've mm-hmm. heard about them oh taking up painting and making wine and whatever all kinds of crazy stories but um when you capture someone you know where are they where are they how is he making sure that that guy's really not going to turn around and try and slit his throat while he's flying you know what i mean that's right he's got to kind of have that. And I was, you know, just making sure he can get there with that person on board, you know, and then they don't want to kill him necessarily. Right. They want to get it, use it for information at that point. Yeah. Well, um, 
as far as the story is concerned, the uh, they 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 were able to capture that Japanese zero in the sense that it accidentally landed at an Allied airfield. Okay. And, <laughs> yeah. And uh, by the time the pilot had recognized the arrow, uh, his mm. um his plane was completely surrounded, and that was how they captured that pilot. And uh, yeah, so it was after they captured the pilot, got him away from his plane. That's when they said, "Okay, we're going to take this zero. Yeah, that's why. And so, so we're going to take this captured zero, and we're going to take it to another uh, Allied airfield that's closer to a port where we can put it on a ship and have it sent back to the U.S. Paint it, paint it, or something, you know. But what what about people? If you capture someone, like, do I mean? That's what we have. We should just do a show on that. Because I was even thinking you're talking about you went through three administrations. Think mm-hmm. about it. Guantanamo Bay. Like mm-hmm. now they're starting to like look at doing right. something about it. I mean, everybody thought Barack Obama was going to mm-hmm. close that down. We actually had. I believe I believe he tried, but something. Something. I, 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 I it's bizarre. There, we had the two attorneys on our show that wrote a book about it way back mm-hmm. when. I think yeah. it's one of our first year of doing radio that was they were on and um yeah it's interesting what's happening now it's just crazy <laughs> like and that whole i mean it's still there you know it's yeah well we'll see what happens but let's do a show mm. on prison prisons of you know prisoners, prisoners of, of war, war and and what happens because when do you capture someone and what do you do with them you know just you right. know do you kill them or not <laughs> Like, you know, we know what I mean? Well, you know, that happens, you know, but well, a lot I of times that you want their information. Well, I think that you don't kill them unless you have to, from the United States point of view. That's how I was brought up. I was always told that. Um, unless you're Osama you, bin Laden. You capture, yeah, you, you, yeah, well, he needed to be assassinated. That's what happened to him because what he did so that's different but when you when you go into war if you um, have people that you use both sides have stopped shooting and there's prisoners on both sides historically the united states always gave the impression that those would now become prisoners and that they would not be mistreated and not killed Whereas other sides in warfare that like if the Germans captured somebody, they were in real big trouble. We did it where like in Vietnam, was it the Japanese that did? The Japanese did terrible things. Under nails, people's nails and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, is is America good like Nancy is saying or? Well, that's what I was brought up to believe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a very strict code of conduct with Mm -hmm. how we handle our, mm-hmm. our enemy prisoners of war right and you know it, it, it's uh it's pretty well regulated by the geneva convention right. now you know uh, of course the wild card um in in this deck is that you're counting on whoever you're going to war against to also follow the also follow the geneva convention mm-hmm. with you know of course there's no guarantee that they will whether or not they were a signator to the convention or not mm-hmm. uh but you know as far as as far as we Americans go, you know, it's always understood that if an enemy surrenders to you, then you accept that surrender and the, you are you are you are to treat them as an enemy prisoner of war, according mm-hmm. to a uh, according to a standardized list that says, OK, when you first encounter um, an enemy EPW, 
what you have to do is this. You have to make sure that uh, you have to make sure one that they are fully neutralized. You have to make mm -hmm. sure that they are disarmed. You have to search them for any pertinent information. You have to separate them from any of their comrades. You have to make sure that they are silenced. You have to make sure that they are safeguarded, and then you have to speed them to the rear, where they're going to be uh, properly processed and interrogated, e e either by the either by the nearest military police unit or, or you know, or uh, perhaps a CIA detachment or even a counterintelligence detachment, somebody who is a trained professional to get them to share the information that they need while still preserving their dignity as a human being. So yeah. that, so that is the, uh, that, that, that is the overall picture that was drilled into us, you mm -hmm. know, when, when yeah. we were in the military and it was expected that we were to follow that particular protocol. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, it's a, uh, it's, <laughs> It, it is a night and day difference with how a lot of other countries handle their prisoners of war. Absolutely. Assuming they kill you on the spot, uh, you know, you can expect to be uh, subjected to some pretty horrific treatment. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are, uh, there are dozens upon dozens of POW stories who, who can validate that. Mm -hmm. and then you think about <clears throat> uh, McCain, John McCain, what he went through. Mm -hmm. as a prisoner of war you know and i was thought he he was he had some balance in in regards to military from what i can tell i'm you know like i'm not military but it seemed like he would have been good at that you know if, if he was president i think he would have understood some things a little bit more than you know i, I didn't you know i'm not going to talk about who what where fucking but i thought you know he had been there you know so you understand and i think if you have been in a prisoner of war do you really have an understanding? That's a whole other level, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It's scary, you know? And uh, I think he was a prisoner of war for a while, quite a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was spent seven years at the Hanoi Hilton. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's actually funny that you mentioned that because uh, it was his experience as a POW, uh, I think in in indirect fashion helped him secure the election for the Senate seat that he held in Arizona mm. because he, he was, he was from a military family. His father was a Navy Admiral and uh, you know, as expected for any number of military kids, you spend a lot of time moving around. You're never really in one place for too long. Mm. And it's really hard for you to declare any one place as your hometown. Well, when, he was running for that Senate seat in Arizona. One of the one of the issues that came up was that, well, you know, hey, this, this guy McCain, he he's not from here. He's not a native Arizonan. He doesn't mm -hmm. know people of Arizona in the same way that his opponent does. And his opponent really tried to drive that home. Mm -hmm. But the way he shut down that argument was brilliant. He said, "Look, I was in a military family. Okay, I moved around from place to place. I didn't have the luxury of calling." A great state like Arizona, my home. In fact, now that I think about it, the longest time I ever spent in one place was the seven years I spent as a POW at the Hanoi Hilton. Wow, see, that was smart. Wow. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I don't think we've ever yeah. stayed anywhere for seven years either. <laughs> Just thinking about that. I don't think Nancy and I have ever stayed in one place for seven years. Oh, seven that's, years, I'll have to think about that. That's a that. hell of a long time. I wouldn't I know. know what to do. Yeah, that would, that would, no, mm. that's, that, that's, I think, you know, mm -mm. military brats, they, that's a hard life, but I think you learn, you learn so much, you more. learn so much, 
you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, the spouses go through a lot, you know, people travel a lot just even for a business, you know, and I think mm-hmm. Nancy and I are apparently addicted to it, but as a kid, I mean, I think I went to, we were saying 15 or 16 schools and mm-hmm. it, it is difficult. You're the new kid on the block for one day, everyone's interested. And then it's like, oh, you're not, you're not from here. <laughs> then you suck. You know what I mean? And so it's a different thing. And, and I didn't have that um, military village necessary. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But, nope. right. But there's that community for kids that I think that they learned, they learned, and it does make you strong as an individual mm-hmm. being a military mm-hmm. grant traveling. Did you do that with your family or because you've traveled yeah, a lot? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, my dad got out of the military when I was still very young. So mm. I, I mm. was at least fortunate enough to call Houston my hometown and yeah. I had enough there that yeah I, I still consider it my hometown yeah we're going to be going through there again soon that's cool it's it's huge now and maybe mm-hmm. next time we go through it won't rain on us <laughs> but, you know, it's rained every time we go stevie ray vaughn's fault that's it, that's it. it's a texas flood you know well mm. good stuff mike thanks again always a mm. pleasure having you on the show what is the date that combat diaries comes out in march okay so we're looking at a release date of march 15th perfect cool. Perfect. Awesome. 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 And everyone can pre-order it on Amazon, right? Yeah, sure can. Awesome. Awesome, everyone. So MikeGuardia.com is the website, and we'll be back on uh, the very first uh, Monday of March. We'll be back on with you, and who cool. knows what we'll talk about next. <laughs> All right. Prisoners of War. Why not? All right. Take care, mm. Mike. All right. Thanks, ladies. Always a pleasure. Okay.